Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian arts. Jonas Strub is a painter, sculptor, performance artist, and ceramicist based out of Toronto. He graduated from the University of Guelph in 2019 with a double major in studio art and psychology. Jonah finished off his degree at the University of the Arts in Bremen. Since experimenting with ceramics in Germany, Jonah's practice has pivoted from painting to include more sculptural forms. One of his more recent works includes a larger-than-life papier-mâché bust titled Ms. Velveeta Cream Cheese. Our conversation was recorded in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, Huron-Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations. everyone where you are right now? I am in my family's home in picturesque North York, Ontario. Amazing. Yes. (laughs) How would you categorize yourself as an artist to give people an idea of like what your work looks like? I really think of myself and as my work as painting. I think I would really define my practice as a painting practice that takes place of many kinds of materials. So I do have like traditional painting practice, which I mostly focus on portraiture and figurative painting. And then I have a ceramics practice, which I think of also as a form of painting because I use underglaze in all of my ceramics. So it's really about texture design and decoration. And I also have a developing performance practice, which is very much influenced by drag. And I think of that as painting as well, because you have the element of makeup. The themes that I look into are mostly about gender and gayness and flamboyancy. There's a real sense of humor and satirism that I use to analyze my relationship to gender as somebody who thinks of themselves as a man, but kind of not really as a man, this like flamboyant hairy Jewish being who loves wearing dresses and makeup and relates so strongly to women while still kind of being in this traditionally male body and using elements of Jewish humor and musical theater and costuming. My ultimate goal is to create a platform that I can have other little flamboyant little gay boys look and say, wow, it's really fun to be yourself. <laughs> and that's ultimately what I think of my practice as being. Are you drawing from other artists within the Canadian art scene or are you drawing from outside pop culture kind of sources? There's a combination of both. Kent Monkman is a huge influence on my artwork. I really, really like that he uses drag and humor and figurative painting and sculpture and performance to bring attention to serious political issues while still kind of like poking fun at masculinity and poking fun at 
the institution of gender and also like Canadian politics and history. And I am really, really influenced by a lot of ceramic artists like Sherry Boyle, who's Canadian, and Pansy Ass Ceramics, who are based out of Toronto. A lot of my peers really influence me, like Emily Reimer, and we work really closely together to do a lot of stuff that's about drag and costuming and characters. A lot of musical theater, like I think that Hairspray truly is visually one of the biggest influences on my entire life. Big hair, big costumes, big people is (laughs) so vital to the way that I look at the world. A lot of drag queens, like I am really, really inspired by drag. Miss Cracker, (laughs) one of the only very Jewish drag queens that I have had the opportunity of seeing live three times. Oh my God. Gigantic hair and loves (laughs) making Jewish jokes is so close to my heart. So good. Like Vendela who is so like vitally at her core theater and then there's a lot of drag kings that actually influence my practice, like Zaki Line, who's a Toronto drag king and also Jewish, like does a lot of stuff based on musical theater, based on puppets. Do you feel like, because drag is so anti-institutional and underground, do you subscribe to that or do you see your work fitting within a more polished institutional gallery kind of scene? I think that I'm really happy fitting in wherever will take me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really important for queer narratives and Jewish narratives and narratives about gender exploration to be in the mainstream. And I really am very excited when I see artists who explore similar themes to me as becoming really recognized and celebrated for what they do. Mm -hmm. But I also find there's a real beauty to the undergroundness of specifically queer art and the queer community because the people who need to see it most are the people who have access to it because you're within that community. I hope to expand my practice past art and also like find myself within theater and maybe do more conventional performance that's not that's not necessarily within an art context or like a fine art context I mean. Mm -hmm. There's lots of stuff that I really am drawn to that I don't know how well it fits within uh, fine art context just based on the fact that the access that people have to it like what I think is really spectacular about theater is that anybody can buy a ticket and watch it and it's made to be understood whereas art typically the environments that they're in are a lot less accessible to people who don't necessarily know how to find those spaces how to take part in them and how to understand them and even as a person who has an education in art and has a lot of connections within the art world. Like it took me many, many, many years to feel really comfortable in gallery settings until I built a community and have now this vocabulary that I can use to describe and analyze art within that I wouldn't have had unless I studied art for five years in a university setting. So I hope to expand past just the art world. How do you feel about your time within the university setting? Because I know you, you focus on painting, but I feel like mm-hmm. everything that you're talking about, it's kind of branching out from everything that you did at Guelph. Right. I loved Guelph. Guelph, I thought, was so spectacular. I thought the professors really pushed us. There was such a beautiful community of people. Um, one criticism I do have of Guelph is that I 
had absolutely no queer professors, except for the fast rooms, who were spectacular, but so kooky and, <laughs> and thought really differently than me. So they were wonderful to have to kind of evolve and expand my ideas of art. But at the same time, like I didn't have any queer painting professors. I didn't have any professors that were queer that made figurative art. And it was really challenging also being the only boy, which yeah. yes, there's privilege to that, but it's it's really hard when people have trouble critiquing my art and giving me constructive criticism because they don't know what angle I'm coming from. Mm. And and I could see that with other people from marginalized groups where they were the only ones, like I was the only gay man in the, at the entire University of Guelph. And <laughs> I was the only Jewish person in the entire program. And I was one of three boys. So I think it would have been really nice to have more queer people to gain inspiration from. I noticed leaving Guelph, my practice really changed because I was no longer restricted to making gay art necessarily for the audience of my peers and my professors. It mm. was pretty much, I was making art for myself. I think the, the art I was making was a lot more personal and a lot more accessible to queer people. Was Chris Ironside there while you were there or you didn't do photography at all? I've never taken a picture in my life. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only other gay man who works at U of G and like his practice is amazing. I'll send you his drawings so you'll really like them. Okay. Um, but yeah, I definitely didn't have queer professors besides the Fast Worms. And Guelph is really white. Do you feel like you weren't exposed to artists of color while you were at Guelph? Mm, I actually feel like I had a lot of exposure to artists of color and we when I was in Specialized which is like the final capstone course for art students we were exposed to a lot of texts that made us critically think about an artist's place and for creating dialogue of art thinking within the context of race we did talk mm. about cultural appropriation a lot like I thought that I had a really good exposure I also took two Indigenous art history courses. So I was really, really well exposed to Indigenous art. I think that even though the population of students was relatively white, I think that it was a very conscious community. And we were very careful to, at least in my year, we were very careful to talk about sensitivity when it came to talking about race. And the few students that we did have that were minorities really made a lot of art about their identities and we spoke openly about it and we had conversations about it I think it would have been nice to actually have more diversity at school but I'm so grateful for the people that were in my year because the conversations that we've had and even like now during this time of social upheaval the conversations that my peers are having who are white are so responsible in the way that they are giving way to black voices instead of speaking from their own experiences as white people so I think Guelph taught me really well, even though there wasn't a lot of diversity there. Do you feel like you got support from the institution itself or your peers is really what made the experience? I think both. I think that the, uni the university really set us up to succeed. I think that but the peers that I had there were just such... I, there are some of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my entire life who make such wonderful art and are just such good people. I did find that I had some professors that kind of might have treated me a little differently because I was gay and making art about being gay. And mm. there was a little bit harsh criticism that was unnecessary, but I think that can happen anywhere. And I think that 
it was un, it was rare to have experiences like that. Most most of the professors were really kind and wonderful. And there was like a number of gay MFAs, which were they were like my go tos for getting information and criticism. And the Fast Worms got me an internship with the Lesbian and Gay Archives, which like even further gave me insight into working within a gay community, specifically Toronto, specifically Canada. So mm-hmm. I think that institutionally, I was given a lot of really great opportunities. Yeah. Seeing that there were so few gay professors. <laughs> um, I, I wish there were more, obviously. <laughs> and how do you see your practice fitting within the larger art scene? Last year, I lived in Germany for about six months in cities called Bremen, also a little tiny may have heard of Berlin. (laughs) People always tell me that my art is very unique and very different from what a lot of people that are making, which kind of surprises me because I feel like I gained such specific influence from artists all over the place. I have a hard time finding a lot of figurative sculpture Mm. when it comes to ceramics. So I think that I am specifically in like the Toronto community. I don't know much about other communities and specifically in, in Germany too. Like I found almost no figurative ceramics. Mm-hmm. So I think that I'm doing something there that not a lot of people are doing, but also I'm really new to ceramics. So it might just be that I'm not exposed. So if you find any, please send them my way. <laughs> I always love learning new artists. Yeah. I think I, I think that I have a really unique art practice, but I don't think that, it's hard to fit me in places. You could see yourself having your work in like a regular group show that you, that you see around the city. Um, actually now that you say that, no, (laughs) (laughs) I find that painting is kind of like an endangered species in the art world. Most shows that I see, I think in a lot of student shows. Yeah. But at a lot of kind of more formal gallery settings, I find very few painters and there's a couple artists that I think I really relate to, like artists that are getting really big, like Rajni Pereira and Nestle. They're doing mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that is about figuration and about character and about heritage and about color and painting. I don't know. Toronto's a really interesting place because I think we have so much diversity, but also we don't have so much diversity at the same time. I think I think the majority of the art that I see is very conceptual and very minimal. Mm-hmm. But I think I do fit out in the fit in into the kind of flashy artists, the the small handful that I find I have a lot of access to here. Do you see yourself reflected? Because Rajni Pereira and Nestle are both represented by Patel. Like, do you see yourself? Oh, my art's so Patel. <laughs> That's the one gallery I walk in, and I'm like, oh, here's my art. <laughs> How does seeing other artists kind of doing this figurative stuff, seeing that they have representation, does that yeah, give you hope for your career? It does give me hope for my career, but then I also, every single time I go to openings, I realize more and more, there's very few people that seem to be really successful in Toronto. I don't know. I think it's motivating. I love networking. It's my favorite thing in the entire world. And I, the more jobs I apply for, um, the more I'm realizing that it's all about who you know. Like you literally cannot get a job in the art world unless you know people. So I was really working hard to 
get myself known by as many people as I possibly could mm-hmm. and introduce myself to as many gallerists as I could and as many artists and, and make relationships with as many artists as I possibly could. And I think I was on my way there. And then little miss coronavirus <laughs> stepped in and said, Hey Jonah, let's derail you for maybe a year and <laughs> put everything you did on hold. I've started selling multiples. I've started making little earrings and people want them, which really shocked me. So obviously people want my art, but how to get people to want to pay a lot of money for my art. What's a lot of money? Well, what I'm finding is that the people who are asking to buy my art are my friends and my peers who are also young 20-somethings who don't have a lot of money. So I can't ask them for... And I've been told over and over and over again, if you start your art out at a low price, it's going to be a low price forever. So I'm very wary of selling my art to people for a lower price than I think that is worth. But at the same time, people who have means don't necessarily have access to my work yet because it's not in spaces that art collectors and people with a little more expendable income are necessarily seeing them. Most of my stuff is shown on Instagram and most of my followers are also young people and young artists. So, Hello folks, this week's podcast recommendation is a trans history podcast titled One from the Vaults, specifically episode 18, Stormy Weather. OFTV is created by Canadian writer, artist, and activist Morgan M. Page who is currently based out of London, England. There is this kind of divide between the art that you can sell to your friends and other artists who are usually lower income, us being in like our early mid-twenties. Yeah. And then this kind of higher class of curators and gallerists. But the, the issue that I'm finding is I don't, for me personally, I don't think that the gallerists necessarily have an interest in emerging queer people. I don't think that's true. I know from the Toronto community, many galleries are very kind of queer focused. Like mm. I know Daniel Faria's gallery represents almost exclusively gay artists. Paul Petro has a large number of gay artists that he represents. And there is a problem with diversity. Like I remember when that, that statistic showed, showed up, it's mostly white and mostly male artists. Mm-hmm. I recently became friendly with an artist named Stephen Andrews who's a really, really lovely person, was really prominent during the AIDS crisis in the 90s. And he was telling me stories of how unless you wanted your art shown, you had to do it yourself. So it was a lot of queer artists supporting queer artists, which kind of turned into these networks of queer artists that include Daniel Faria, that include Paul Petra, who showed artists like Will Monroe. I think that there's a lot of space for, at least for white male gay artists, which is a category I fit into. Obviously, everyone deserves to have as much representation as possible. Do you think it's just a matter of our cohort growing up and, well, I don't even know if our cohort will own galleries because we don't own property. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that gayness is becoming, especially with white male gayness, is becoming less and less on the kind of outside of mainstream culture. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of interest in gayness and gay culture, and there's a lot of engagement from uh, the greater community than there has been in the past. 
obviously there's still work that needs to be done, but I think that the art community and the theater community, which is also a part of my practice, has always been very open to gayness. Do you think that you find support from these gay institutions like the archive that you worked with or from your fellow queers that you're making work with? I think it's a combination. I don't think those can necessarily be separated because Mm -hmm. those people who work at those institutions have become part of my gay network um, and queer network. It's good to have relationships all over the place. And I have people that were, that started as friends and then they moved on to work at institutions who have given me opportunities because I've kept good relationships with those people. And, And I think that queer people like to support each other. So I think that if I was ever in a position of authority where I could choose artists to be represented and highlight artists on a bigger platform, I would choose from my network of queer people. The network is what's important and the institution is kind of like how you get in touch with other gay people or like how you put together shows. Yeah, I think institutions are made of people and people at those institutions are part of your network and you have to be able to think of everybody as a potential friend and a potential contact. So Mm -hmm. even if somebody isn't necessarily part of an institution now, it doesn't necessarily mean they won't be part of an institution later. And if somebody's part of an institution now, it doesn't mean they're not going to be your your peer and your friend later. So I think it's all connected to each other. That's such a wholesome way of viewing the art world. Like, we're all connected, so you might as well, well be nice to each other. <laughs> the, the more that I become a part of the art world, I'm just learning that everyone's just friends with each other, and that's how you get opportunities. You don't get opportunities from applying to things. You don't get opportunities from applying to jobs. It's all about being friendly, being generous, being a kind, likable person who likes to talk to people and likes giving opportunities to people who you think deserve it. Most of the people in the art community come from like a very specific handful of schools. So they all have connections that way. Yeah. Do you find that problematic though? Because I feel like when I love um, the Guelph community, like don't get me wrong, but I would never Mm want to be in an art show with only Guelph people because I feel like we have so much in common and we come from the same theory that it might all start to kind of blend, you know? I think it really depends I love the art that's coming out of what my friends are making after school. And I'm finding that it is really, we all come from such unique backgrounds and we all come, have such different interests. And we, even talking to my friends, we've all had the same professors. We've all taken the same classes, but what we've gotten out of each of those classes, the learning opportunities that we've gotten from each professor and which professor we've thought of as the most influential and the medium that we thought of as the most influential the subject matter that we thought of as the most influential it's all really different I think during school it can all get a little muddy but once you're in your fourth year and once you're in your fifth year people usually find their stride and then once you graduate everyone I know is making something different now than what they were making during their undergrad I was just thinking also like as a person who's obviously curating this podcast Mm -hmm. I've had to really go outside my networks because they are they're really white just like coming from Guelph coming from Toronto hanging on the galleries that I do I love the art obviously that I'm surrounded by but I do Mm -hmm. feel like I'm in this kind of echo chamber and like my community is an echo chamber yeah and do you feel like maybe your community as like tight-knit as it is do you feel like it it is connected to other little 
communities throughout Toronto or do you feel like you're you're in that like echo chamber a bit? I think that's really challenging to answer because I'm one of the only people from my cohort that ended up in Toronto. True. Or, well, I'm from here, so I didn't just end up here, but I kind of didn't go anywhere after school. But I think because of that, I now have people who are in different art communities, which do have different issues and interests in terms of research and in curation. So I now have a connection to the Waterloo art world. I now have a connection to the Guelph art world. I now have a connection to the Bremen, Germany art world, <laughs> and to the Berlin art world. I have had a really amazing opportunity of living in multiple places and being a part of multiple communities, which I don't think a lot of people have access to. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is restrictions when people kind of stay in the same place and don't expand their network, don't expand their relationships past what they know previously, don't expand the things that they're exposed to. Mm-hmm. But I think social media as well has really changed that I have access to so many more people than I would otherwise like there's people that I met once who live in another city were visiting Toronto once or live in another province or country even that I have kept in touch with yeah I, I got people everywhere I got my I got my art family all over the world baby that's so lovely <laughs> yeah how do you feel like your practice deviates from norms within the art world if you're looking at queer art particular Mm -hmm. the relationship that I have with queer art is that a lot of it's very sexual and a lot of it's very based in being a man Mm -hmm. and your relationship to being queer as it comes to being a man and being a sexual being so there's a lot of like sexual nudity there's a lot of imagery of like sex toys and Mm -hmm. jock strap Um, and I felt that there wasn't a lot of people celebrating femininity Slowly, 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 I kind of found the aesthetics that I was most interested in were kitsch and camp and silliness and humor and theater and puppetry. And I think I I filled that void for myself. And now that I have kind of made that my brand, like celebrating femininity and making femininity really visible, Mm -hmm. I have been exposed to a lot more artists who explore those themes, but a lot of them, I call them artists, but they aren't kind of vilified as artists within the art world. Like there's a lot of activists who use drag, like the sisters of perpetual indulgence, who (laughs) is this like band of nuns that started in, I don't remember when they started. They might've started in the seventies, but it's these like campy drag queen nuns that do charity for AIDS and, and like other gay and queer um, things <laughs> and then drag I think kind of finds itself in theater find themselves in their own category and don't have a lot of from what I've seen don't have a lot of overlap into traditional art so I'm trying to like bring that in for myself yeah so many of the artists that I talk to don't consider themselves artists because mm-hmm. they aren't included in this walled garden of the art world yeah. How do you hop that fence? The best advice that I've ever had was from my professor, Kathy Barat, who told me, she said that she used to be a very serious, abstract painter who made big, abstract paintings. And her professor told her, like, Kathy, I don't think you're making abstract paintings that are genuine. Like, I look in your sketchbooks and they're just full of cartoons of little people. 
why don't you just and why don't you just do what you do? Why do you have to pretend to be something you're not? And from then on, all of her paintings, Heike Katy Barat, she's based in Berlin, and she makes spectacular giant cartoons that she's very successful. And I think that what draws people into her artwork is that they are so authentic. Mm -hmm. So I think that it took me a really long time to realize, like, I don't need to be making the art that I'm seeing. I just need to be making the art that comes to me and that feels the most authentic. It took me many, many years. And this is kind of new to me where I'm just kind of making whatever I want, whatever I like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then realizing that there actually is by doing that. There's a reason I'm attracted to these themes. There's a reason I'm attracted to this kind of imagery. And that's my concept that makes it conceptual art. Like it can be a giant paper mache drag queen named Zelvita. (laughs) And that is conceptual. So do you think it's this over intellectualization? That's this barrier for artists that consider themselves outside the art world. I think it's a barrier. I think it's also a restriction to a lot of artists Mm. in the art world. For a lot of my fellow co-students, this was something that a lot of us really had trouble with. There was such a focus on conceptual art. And I think that's a limitation of the institution. Like, I think every school has one. And and the limitation that Guelph had was that there was a huge focus on conceptualism. But for my own practice... There's something about letting go and something about just making something for the sake of making something instead of thinking of the politics first and thinking of the concept first. Mm. I find the art that people are most drawn to and the art that I'm most drawn to is stuff that just looks fun and authentic. I just like happy art, so stuff that's full of joy and humor. I think that conceptualization of art and the kind of intellectualization of art For me personally, I have a lot of trouble enjoying those artworks. I'm not talking about the quality of art. I'm just talking about my own personal preferences. Mm -hmm, Your taste, yeah. When art uses humor, when art uses representational imagery, color, that's when I feel most engaged. And I feel that there's a lot of queer artists who do that because there is a really long history of vocabulary when it comes to imagery like that. And artists like Kent Monkman, where there is so much color and figuration in his exploration of being a two-spirited First Nation person. I think there's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's restricted to the queer community. I don't think queer artists exclusively use fun imagery. But there's also a lot of really like brooding, serious gay artists mm. who make really serious, very simple art. And I think that's valid. And I think that there's a lot of that. <laughs> I don't think that queer artists necessarily are all making beautiful, colorful stuff. No, I think I'm I'm especially interested in the people that are. Like, I feel like yeah. in 20 years, we're going to have a name for this kind of um, wave of queer artists. But, like, I don't have a name for it right now. And, and it's just something I'm interested in personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. How are you moving forward while you're in lockdown for Rona? It was really disheartening at first because I think that I gain a lot of, I gain a lot of energy from people. Mm -hmm. I love, literally, I drool at the idea of networking. It's my favorite thing in the entire world. It was really, really hard for me when I graduated school and I didn't have a social space where I could create art. So I was having a lot of trouble creating art at home. But I somehow have managed to be creative. Paper mache 
has been such a huge part of my quarantine because mm-hmm. it's so easy, so accessible. Everybody has access to the materials. All you literally need is paper, tape, and glue. So, and it's like paint. Like I was saying before, where there's this idea of making what you think of art needing to be. Mm-hmm. It's given me kind of, well, it's still been hard and it's like hard to get energy and it's hard to create art in a vacuum outside of a community right now. It has given this kind of liberation where, again, I'm just making art for my own sanity instead of making it for anybody else. And it's helped me create some artwork that I feel really, really happy about. I think that I obviously would prefer if I wasn't in lockdown, but (laughs) it's really helped me realize what I really like doing. Mm -hmm. And if that means making earrings of hairy legs, it means making earrings of hairy legs. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct slash fact check a past episode, or would like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. Thanks to OCAD University for their financial support, my project supervisor Amish Morell for his advice and guidance, and Claudia Slogar-Rick for all of her extra help. Original artwork for Hopping the Fence by Alex Gregory. Original music by Jessica Price-Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.